a very small group with a very large responsibility. The burden on us 435 members is to represent 325 million Americans faithfully. To work together so that tomorrow is better than today. They called upon the beauty of our Constitution, our system of checks and balances that protects our democracy. Remembering that the legislative branch is Article One the first branch of government, co-equal to the presidency and to the judiciary. That's what it sounded like in January 2019 on the opening day of the 116th Congress. Now we are just days away from the same two congressional leaders, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, ushering in the 117th Congress, one that was elected in and will undoubtedly be shaped by the coronavirus pandemic. In fact, Congress received word just five days before their opening session that 41-year-old Representative-elect Luke Letlow of Louisiana had succumbed to COVID-19. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Susan Swain. In this episode, as a preview of the 117th Congress, we will introduce you to six women members of the House's freshman class. Women have gained seats in the U.S. House this session, moving from 23 percent to nearly 27 percent of its voting membership. These gains put them at 141 seats overall, a record compared to last term's 126. Republican women in particular made large gains in the 2020 election, growing their numbers from 13 to 27 House seats. But they still fall well short of the 106 Democratic House women. First up, you'll hear one of these new GOP women members, Representative-elect Maria Elvira Salazar of Florida. Here she speaks with C-SPAN's Corinne Morgan about when she decided to move from news to elective office. When was the moment you realized you wanted to move on from news and enter uh, politics? When I started realizing that there are forces um, in this country saying that democratic socialism is the way to go, that that is the right ideology. We come from um, a Cuban background. I just told you my parents were political refugees. And we saw that that dogma, it uh, promises something on theory, but when it comes to practice, it's miserable. And that's the reason when I decided to, that I wanted to uh, join politics to see if to, to try to make changes and, pre- and um, prevent from that ideology taking place in this country. When did you decide that you wanted to be Republican? I, we were, I was always a Republican because, as I said, we're Cuban-Americans, and we remember um, the Democratic Party has not been as forceful against the Cuban Revolution as the Republican has. And for us, the Cuban Revolution is something that we carry in our hearts, and it's a very important topic. It's a, it's a, it's a pending topic that has not, has not been um, closed um, or has not been taken care of uh, in favor of the, um, the Cuban people, which you is sp- having liberty and, and uh, freedom. You spoke about your family and their influence, especially within politics. Tell me about your early life and where you grew up. I was born in Miami, Florida, and a uh, few years after I was born, we moved to Puerto Rico, the island of Puerto Rico. And I went to grammar school there. There's where I learned Spanish. 
something that helped me tremendously to be able to speak it and write it when I was working for Spanish television, Univision and, and Telemundo. Then we came back to Miami when I was 14. I did high school in Miami and I went to the University of Miami. And after that, I went to Harvard, uh, the John F. Kennedy School of Government to get a master's in political economy. Who so my, yeah. I'm sorry, no, you can finish. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. interrupt no, no, that was, that was it. I, I, and then we came back to Miami and, and I, I studied and I started working when I was uh, 22 years old and, and what was the local affiliate for Univision at the time. Who would you say is uh, the most influential person in your life? I would say that my grandmother, Elvira, I carry her name. She was a very strong um, force or influence in my life. She um, shaped me, shaped my character, shaped my ideology. And uh, I am sure that she would be very proud in seeing me, what I'm doing right now as a member of Congress, fighting those forces that destroyed her life. Tell me about your district, uh, Florida's 27th district. Tell me about it. It's very, it's the ultimate melting pot. You have the Hispanics, you have the Cubans, you have the African-Americans, you have the white Americans, and uh, and you have within the Hispanic group, the Central Americans, Hondurians, Nicaraguans, uh, Guatemalans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Equatorians, Peruvians, Venezuelans, uh, Argentinians, and Cubans. And we all live in peace, love each other, uh, along with the African-Americans and with the Anglo-Americans. And it's really the face of America, but, but, um, but sharing uh, the view that the United States is a, is a fantastic country and that we all have to fight for, for, its, um, for its betterment and its prosperity. That was Representative-elect Maria Elvira Salazar. She flipped Florida's 27th district, Miami-Dade County, held by first-term Congresswoman Donna Shalala, a member of the Clinton cabinet and a former president of the University of Miami. Prior to her run for the House, Salazar was a popular broadcast anchor for the Spanish-language network Telemundo for nearly three decades. Hispanic members will make up about 9% of the House in 2021, roughly the same percentage as in the last Congress. Next is another Hispanic member-elect, Teresa Legere Fernandez, a Democrat from New Mexico. She's replacing Ben Ray Lujan, who won a seat in the U.S. Senate. Speaking with C-SPAN's Pedro Echeverria, Legere Fernandez explained what inspired her to run for office. What prompted you to run for Congress? So, you know, I'll be real honest. I've got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. And, you know, I've been trying to make a difference in my community here in New Mexico. Uh, You know, I came home because this is where my love is. This is where my heart is, you know, mi corazón. And uh, so... Uh, I started getting calls uh, when this opened up. Some of the people that Ben Ray called picked up the phone immediately after and called me. And I really, in this instance, it's the first time I've ever felt like I was responding to a call. And not a phone call, but a call, right? A calling. Uh, my father behind me, is uh, one of his signs was when he wanted to get something done and make life better for the community, he goes, oh, rescuando, let's do it now. we got to do it now. And I really felt like, oh, rescuando, now was the time I had to answer this call to try to take my experience and, um, and take it to a larger level. Uh, because I did have insight of what, 
what struggles were on the ground. We sometimes talk about um, for representation that we need to have people who have those lived experiences. And my lived experiences aren't just that I've been working on the ground and in the trenches on these issues. I know where the obstacles are. I've been creating opportunity in places of poverty for decades. And, and I've been looking at those things that heal us. And so I, was, I realized that this was a calling, that this was something that it was my time to do this. And I was bringing um, some experience and some insight um, and, 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 and some empathy, but, uh, but more importantly, connection with my community uh, to this job. And so I answered the call and uh, that's why I'm running. I, I ran on a platform of protecting what we love. I wanted to put love at the center of my campaign because when you act from a place of love, it's a very powerful place. And it means you are gonna put the interests of others, of your community first. And so, um, so I felt like now is the time that I had to act to you know, take some of the bold action that we all recognize we need to take now to protect the places and the issues we love, right? This pandemic has showed us how, how vulnerable we all are, but especially um, that there has been an undue uh, burden of suffering uh, on you know, minority communities, uh, communities of color, uh, poor communities, and that, that we need to address those so that, so that we, we, we have a more fair and equal uh, society in the future. We really need to invest in our future. And so I wanted to be able to participate in, in steering the country, hopefully, in that direction. That was incoming Democratic Congresswoman Teresa Legere Fernandez, who will represent Santa Fe. She's a graduate of Yale University and Stanford Law School, and her career has been in social impact law in her home state. She will be the first woman and first Latina to represent her district. New Mexico will have a history-making House delegation made up of all women of color. You're listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly as we meet some of the new women members joining the 117th Congress, which opens on January 3rd. Young Kim is a Republican who will represent California's 39th district, which includes northern parts of Orange County. A former California Assemblywoman, she was a longtime legislative assistant and hosted TV and radio programs focusing on Korean-American issues. Kim is one of three Korean-American women elected to Congress in November, another history-making event. News of this reportedly reverberated throughout Asia. Here is C-SPAN's Greta Bronner talking with Ms. Kim about the role of faith in her decision to run for Congress. How do you think your childhood experiences and your faith have influenced your politics? As I mentioned, my mom played a key role. Uh, she was a woman of prayer. Uh, she really played a key role in helping to establish the, our first uh, Korean American Presbyterian Church on the island of Guam. And that uh, really stayed with me. Um, so I just, you know, went on to serve the community as my mom and my parents had uh, anticipated, or they asked me, you got to give back to this country because we have given, we have been given so many opportunities. And so when I was able to do that, I was lucky to be introduced to my former boss, Congressman Ed Royce. He was in the state Senate then. I started working in his district office with his election to Congress. I continued to work with him for the last 20 plus years. I I had the unprecedented opportunity to serve with him, uh, you know, uh, also 
you know, represent this community, because I also went on to serve in the California State Assembly, which was overlapping the 39th district. So constituent services has been a key uh, priority of mine, and that's exactly how I am going to represent the 39th district. Um, A lot of people are hurting especially with pandemic these days. And so we need to make sure their needs are met, their priorities are my priorities as I serve them in Washington, D.C. Why are you a Republican? You know, it is, I always say the Republican Party is a um, grand opportunity party. I came to Los Angeles to attend USC. And it was during those times that I I got to first become a, a naturalized citizen. I became I registered to be a Republican when I saw uh, President Ronald Reagan. He was the first person that I got to vote for. It is a party of individual responsibility who uh, really Uh, recognizes what we are about and really giving us the opportunity to grow and give back. And so it's the party that I think I can grow and also share the opportunities that it was provided to me. And, uh, you know, it's, there is a saying, you cannot just give uh, people what they want when they cry out for it. You got to teach them how to get those things. And that is the party the Republican Party for me. That's why I became a Republican. And I'm very proud to be a fiscally conservative Republican member serving in the United States Congress. Did you reach out to former Congressman Ed Royce for advice on running for this seat? And what did he tell you? You know, I uh, decided to run for this seat first in 2018 when he announced his retirement. I didn't think that he would retire, um, so it was a surprise for me, but I called him and I said, you know, I've worked with you, I know this district, and this uh, community deserves a independent thinker like you, uh, deserves a, a representative who is, you know, willing to work across the aisle, so do you think I have what it takes to be your successor or continue to represent. He said, you know, I have never seen anyone who works just as hard and you are the hardest worker. You know the district. You've raised your children in this community. You are the perfect fit. Go for it. That was Representative-elect Young Kim, who unseated first-term Democrat Gil Cisneros. The pair had faced off once before in the 2018 election. Overall, Republicans flipped 14 House seats during the 2020 election. The Democrats flipped three, which narrowed their overall majority to just a handful of seats. One Democrat who kept her district blue is Cori Bush of Missouri. Here she tells C-SPAN's Pedro Echeverria about what convinced her to run for the House and how she ended up facing off against a family friend. Your political career was uh, formed in part, if I understand it, from the death of Michael Brown, how did that shape uh, your pursuing a, a career in Congress? I never had a desire to uh, run for public office at all. As a matter of fact, I would say I would never run. My dad's been in politics for most of my life. And I remember telling him when I was around 18, I'll never do what you're doing. I'll never run for office. I'll never be in politics. Um, because I saw a good person give his soul to the community. And I saw so much corruption and greed you know, around him. Um, and but when Michael Brown was murdered, you know, I was working as a, a nurse. Uh, I was the uh, um, director of a, a center, uh, the nursing manager of a, of a clinic, mental health clinic. I was also pastoring at the time. Um, and so I just felt like, OK, I can take 
um, my my skills to the streets. So I went to the streets as a medic. I went to the streets as clergy. And but what I saw was I saw regular people giving of themselves out there on the streets of, you know, um, putting their livelihood on the line, putting their life on the line. But what I didn't see enough of was elected officials who were paid to represent us and from those areas standing up out there with us. They weren't. Many of them weren't. It was photo ops for some. Um, and so I realized when someone asked me to run, a, an activist who has since been murdered, asked me to run for our office, I said no at first. But then I realized that this is the only way that we get the change that we're seeking. The people that are out here on the ground, the people that are risking themselves, that keep coming back after being brutalized, after being arrested, after all of these things, how do we get that hard into into federal office is we have to run and so i thought about my son i thought about my daughter do i want my son to be the next hashtag he was 14 at the time do i want my daughter to be the next and i couldn't bear that so i decided to run you would go on to challenge representative william lacy clay did you have reservations taking on a longtime politician absolutely um i had reservations for several reasons uh growing up you know, I personally canvassed um, for him back when I was a child because my dad was in politics. He and my dad, they know each other. Uh, my dad is actually in his father's book, you know, as being a, a, someone who is who helped him. Um, we so we have a, a family history of, of helping of helping his family. Um, but uh, so it was that. Not only, but it was also I'm a black woman running against a black man, and and just thinking about that, I was already being called a traitor to the Democrats because of my very first run, and so all of those things were going through my head. But when I thought about how often I saw the incumbent come to Ferguson and stand with us, when I thought about how he could have stood in between the police and the people, how he could have stopped the tear gas, how he could have stopped the noise munitions and the and and the rubber bullets and the, the dogs, how he could have stopped all of that. When I think about that, um, I had to, I, I, and the idea that just two months before Michael Brown was murdered, where he could have, where he could have voted um, against uh, police militarization, but instead he voted to support it. And I personally, was brutalized by that same militarized force and so many others, I knew, it. you know, there, I had to do it. That was Cori Bush, who will represent St. Louis in Congress. She's the first African-American woman to serve in the House from Missouri. Overall, there will be 59 black members of Congress in the 117th, 57 of them Democrats. Next, you'll meet the two youngest women joining the House of Representatives. These two millennials are a world away, age-wise, from the oldest member of the House, Representative Don Young, Republican of Alaska, who at nearly 88 years old was reelected to his 25th term in Congress last November. Representative-elect Kat Kamick, age 32, will be the youngest elected Republican woman on Capitol Hill. Here she explains what it means for her to be a constitutional conservative. You described yourself uh, as a, on all your campaign and your, your uh, congressional materials as a constitutional conservative. Explain to me what that means to you. So for me, I, I honestly have have always believed that when you take your oath um, and sw- you're sworn in as a member or even as as a congressional staffer, you take the oath uh, to the United States Constitution. You don't take an oath to a political party. And our constituents, in my case, about 710,000 of them, expect me to legislate from a constitutional basis in a way that is meaningful and productive for our country as a whole, not a party. So for me, as I cast these votes and, and having 
been through this process a little bit, you see a lot of programs that aren't constitutional, that aren't clearly defined as a responsibility or duty of the federal government. There's so many things that I think the states um, have responsibility for that we have basically taken over. And so when I'm casting my votes, I'm really casting it with the Constitution in mind, approaching it as a holistic document rather than a la carte. There's so many times where people want to forget you know, one amendment over another. And um, I think that that's going to be really my basis and my foundation as I legislate come January 2021. Where do you think that will place you within the Republican conference? Are you like-minded with most members or do you think that might in fact be a challenge from time to time? Well, I'm hoping that as everyone takes their oath to the United States Constitution, that they, they understand that we have a free constitutional republic. And uh, I, I know that there are some members of uh, the, the class um, going into the 117th Congress that are uh, what they call progressive, and they would like to see a more socialist um, form of government coming in that is less about serving the individual and, and the people and more about serving government. I tend to side with the American people in the working class. I think that government operates best when it is small and accountable and transparent and people have the power to control that. I don't think that people should work to serve the government and build these big bureaucratic programs. So um, as far as where I find myself, I am a a pretty conservative member, but I'm American first. So I will work with with members and and those that seek to make our country a better place and, and really preserve the concept of equal opportunity rather than equal outcome. That was Kat Kamek, who will represent Florida's third district, the area around Gainesville and Ocala. Before running for office, she was a congressional staff member for Ted Yoho, whose seat she fills. The youngest Democratic woman in the new Congress is Sarah Jacobs, who will represent San Diego, California's 53rd district. Jacobs is the granddaughter of Irwin Jacobs, the billionaire founder of Qualcomm. She tells us how growing up with plenty of opportunity led her to a public service career. Every biography of you, of course, points out that you were the granddaughter of the founder of Qualcomm, Erwin Jacobs. So let's start there. What influence did your grandfather have on your life, uh, on your worldview? Yeah, I'm incredibly proud of everything that my grandfather has been able to do. And he always taught us that it was our unique responsibility to use the advantages and the responsibilities that we've been given in order to make sure that every family had access to the kinds of opportunities that our family had access to. You know, my, my family was at one point Jewish immigrants. My grandfather is the first in his family to go to college. Uh, he got his PhD and then worked at a public university. And in part because of that public investment in universities and the fact that he didn't graduate with student loan debt, he was able to start a business that has really revolutionized the way we communicate um, and, you know, frankly, has really built San Diego into um, the high tech hub that it is. And, you know, I believe that it's my responsibility now to make sure that future generations, that my generation, millennials, who are saddled with trillions of dollars of student loan debt and two once-in-a-lifetime, uh, once-in-a-generation economic crises that we've already had to weather, are able to, you know, really live the same kind of American dream that my family had access to. So who or what along the way inspired you to turn towards Washington? Your route to Congress was through the policy arena. What started all that for you? 
you know, I had always been taught um, that I had to figure out where I could have the most impact and make the biggest difference for the most amount of people and the most vulnerable people. Um, and for a long time, I thought that was as a policy advisor, whether it was working at UNICEF um, on how we could better serve vulnerable children around the world, working at the UN in peacekeeping and at the State Department in conflict prevention and stabilization, really trying to to work on some of these really complex and seemingly intractable problems. Um, but after 2016, uh, when I was working on the uh, Clinton campaign as one of her uh, foreign policy advisors, um, after we lost, I, I realized that um, as much as I still prefer writing policy memos to giving press interviews, no offense, um, that uh, at the end of the day, everything I cared about was at risk here at home. And that many of the challenges that I was working on overseas were also happening here. And that I had to stop writing talking points for someone else to say, and I had to step out and start saying it myself. How would you describe your political philosophy? Uh, I consider myself a pragmatic progressive. I think we have to be talking about the huge challenges and problems that are facing our country that have been laid bare and exacerbated by COVID-19, but under no circumstances or under most circumstances were not created by COVID-19. You know, in San Diego County alone, uh, prior to COVID-19, we had about 40% of our kids who were living in families experiencing poverty. And to me, in one of the wealthiest counties, in the wealthiest state, in the wealthiest country that the world has ever known, that is simply unacceptable. That was 31-year-old Representative-elect Sarah Jacobs, who's the only freshman appointed to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Speaker Pelosi also tapped her for the Democratic Steering Committee in Congress. Jacobs is the youngest woman in the freshman class, but Congress's youngest new member overall is North Carolina's Madison Cawthorn, who turned 25, the minimum constitutional age for House members, in August. Our website has the full interviews with each of the members of Congress we featured in this program. Just go to cspan.org slash Congress and search any of them by name. The opening session of the 117th Congress occurs on Sunday, January 3rd, kicking off a busy first week, which includes the Georgia Senate runoff elections, and on January 6th, the Electoral College certification of the presidential election. You can watch it all live on the C-SPAN television networks or listen via C-SPAN radio. Shannon Rice is our producer for C-SPAN's The Weekly, and we both send you our best wishes for the new year. <laughs> 